All right. Welcome back and happy Tuesday, everybody, to another Learning Tech Talks where we are exploring, I'm just going to start saying all things learning and workplace technology transformation. I don't know. I, I haven't come up with a new catch line for it, um, but I'm excited for this because for a lot of reasons, and I may say that every week, but this time is probably more than ever. This is actually the last official live stream I'm going to be doing in 2022 taking a little bit of a break, uh, but I do have some content pre-recorded. Uh, you should have seen those go out last night uh, for some of the ones that are coming up. This is the last live one. So if you have questions today, bring them. Like bring your questions live because uh, you're gonna. I'm going to be a little bit off air for a bit. But to navigate this conversation, I'm also really excited about the conversation I'm about to have because I'm joined by Jupman Bajaj and he's from Vimetric. We're going to be talking about capability and skill assessment. And I am very excited about this because the conversation in learning and development, we talk about skills so much. Actually, everyone's talking about skills yeah. so much, but it's still very much up in the ether. And so Jupman, I'm looking forward to this. Thank you for joining me and being so flexible too, because I know we had to move the show around to actually get you in, get you in before, uh, before I took some time away. Absolutely. Well, family comes first. Happy to be flexible. And thanks for doing this, man. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. I'm, so, I'm really excited to be here. Um, no. I've watched a number of the episodes, so I feel like I'm uh, I'm, I'm either <laughs> super ready for what's about to come or I've just overprepared. <laughs> and then you just, you just had a call to all the listeners, all the watchers to put all sorts of questions. It's like, you're going to grill me today. I know. It's good. It's good. Come Finish bring them on. I know. I know. Well, that's, you know, that's how I roll. It's a, it's a very intimidating show. I know, I know people yeah. are very, I'm a very intimidating yeah. person. People would usually just <laughs> buckets of sweat as we get going. Um, so, and for those of you who are just joining, I would love to hear where you're joining from, but Jupman, where are you in the world right now? Just so people have a little bit of context because you got this virtual background. I can't, I can't tell uh, if it's fair. night or day or what. Fair enough. It's uh, actually, it's the joys of remote working. I've, uh, and in right? fact, for the listeners at home, you may or may not hear some hammering coming from the office upstairs, but we Ooh, are in, uh, hammering. <laughs> we are in snowy, cold, but also amazingly wonderful Toronto, Ontario. Up in Canada, okay. uh, which, by the way, Chris, as you know, you are an honorary Canadian based on where you sit geographically. So, you know, yeah, you're feeling the same close. thing. Um, but yeah, yeah, I'm a good, good old Canadian boy. Good old Canadian. So you also know it's going to be a very friendly conversation <laughs> because you've got a Midwesterner and a Canadian going get back passionate. and forth. We get passionate. <laughs> we do, right? I'm friendly, but I get very passionate. And this is going to be a very passionate topic. Um, all right. So you're in Canada. You can see my background has not changed. For those of you who have watched, probably like, does he ever get out of that chair? I do, I promise. But the background is always the same. Um, and it is real. See, that's right. That's the real deal right there. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about, let's start with your journey in terms sure. of how did you end up leading a company focused on learning capability and assessment? Like, was that yeah. childhood dream you had once? Yeah, well, Chris, I was born in, you know, 1986. Uh, <laughs> we'll go all the way back. We could go uh, all the way back. <laughs> all the way back. Uh, but it's it, it's sort of, it's sort of you know, it's sort of part of the story, right? My parents are immigrants to Canada. They came about 50 plus years ago. So been here a, a long time, worked their butts off. And uh, we saw a lot of that growing up. We saw the work ethic. We saw all of that. And lots of families have been through that story and, um, yeah. you, you know, grew up and, and sort of discovered entrepreneurship towards sort of university. Um, okay. And, uh, you know, I was, I studied finance and, you know, I was sort of thought, you know, I'll work in finance. I'll work on, I'll work on wall street for a few years and then I'll come back to Canada okay. and just, you know, make my money and retire quietly. Um, <laughs> Go build, yeah. make tons of money in yeah. the stock market and then retire back to Canada. That was so, the yeah, plan. Yeah. That was the big plan. Now here's the, here is the big, the big sort of, the big sort of wrinkle in the plan. Uh, was I graduated with a finance degree in uh, about 2008. I don't know if your listeners remember what 2008 was like for finance. <laughs> if I remember right, it was a fantastic year in finance. I think the Just market amazing. was booming. The housing yeah. market was skyrocketing. I think, or maybe it's the opposite. I can't yeah, remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I call out, you know, it, was, it wasn't too long after 9-11 and this whole thing was still sort of people were still figuring the whole oh. thing out. Gosh. So, right. yeah. Yeah. So, so finance, you know, and luckily I had sort of landed in entrepreneurship before I decided to go pursue a true career in finance. 
Um, and so my first company was uh, was largely focused in the post-secondary space. Learned a lot about education and um, built a nice little built a nice little enterprise, and um, and spent a lot of time talking to colleges, universities, um, large government, healthcare as well, but okay. really understanding the business of education. And I, I think that was sort of where the bug sort of hit. I mean, I've always been involved with educational things. I just never really saw it that way. So anyways, that was my first bite into education. I ended up after, you know, exiting that company and ended up spending five years in corporate and this talent and skills problem sort of just kept popping up, right? I was an executive at a company called Telus, sort of the Verizon of the North, if you will, yeah. large player in telecommunications um, and uh, had a lot of people focused programs in my, in my role, um, you know, in terms of bringing accessibility and, and technology to disadvantaged people and some remarkable programs that they do. And then my second corporate stint in cloud and data and, you know, big tech type of thing, you know, just seeing the crazy labor shortages and sort of this idea that labor was really in demand of their careers in tech. So when Vimetric sort of found me- Which, like which say, on that, which is yeah. interesting about that, because I think some of this conversation about what's happening in the labor markets and talent shortages and, oh, the skills crisis and all of this, in yeah. some of the conversations I've had, for some folks, there's a perception that this is a relatively new thing. Like this just started happening a couple years ago. And the reality is, and I think you just highlighted this really well, this has been coming like a freight train for a while now. And I think your experience just highlights the fact that this isn't something that in 2020, we suddenly went, oh, we've got a, we've yeah. got an issue on our hands. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely, right? Like, I mean, if we were, if we were societally better planners, we would have gotten ahead of this a little bit more. Um, and that's okay. I mean, at the end of the day, we've, we we're, we're a species that survives, but yeah, you're right. This problem has been around for a while and, and, and the next 10 years are going to be super critical as Canadian and American, North American regional global societies as to how we figure out what to do with people um, coming out of the pandemic and not to make it a sort of softy conversation around that stuff. But like, I mean, really people are looking for value, meaning, purpose, passion, um, yeah. generically, whether that be remote, you know, hybrid, or whatever, and the, that stuff is fine. But I think really at the core, people <laughs> That's are just looking- That's the how, honestly. <laughs> That's right. Like the what is like, people are looking to be valued and people are looking yeah. to do valuable things. And, you know, I, I feel really fortunate. I mean, this is for all the things that I've done before in my life. And there's been a lot of really cool global and domestic and whatever corporate experiences and all that. This is the first time in my life I wake up every day being super jazzed about what we do, because I know we're not only, you know, transforming organizations and employers, but we're changing lives. Like people's lives are getting better because of the work that we do. Um, and it's super exciting, super, super exciting to me. And, and I have a follow-up question to this. Um, but I think this is one of the things that does does sometimes get missed when we have the skills conversation and why does this matter? I think there's a lot of talk about how big of a thing it is, the tentacles that it has in organizations, the changes that are required. We, we talk a lot about the work associated with it, but sometimes it's missed like why is this so meaningful like why do we even care to go through this because if it's not that meaningful it is easy yeah. to look at the work and go oh that's a lot of work for but if you truly understand which we'll get into so i don't want to spoil that one yet because sure. i think hopefully we're going to illuminate this but so we've talked a little bit about this then how do you describe what the metric is we talked about skills and and a set but when people say so you decided to leave wall street do this you found yeah. your ties and now you went in. How do you describe it? Yeah, I left the cushy corporate to go uh, to go build something. Um, <laughs> the metric is, is frankly, it's the most uh, accommodating and most inclusive platform in the world when it comes to skills development. Um, yeah. What we do is legally defensible learning. And we do that sort of applying the rigor of like audit and compliance. So for us, it's not enough. You know, we sort of say assessment is the critical gatekeeper to whether or not people maximize their potential, which obviously is super meaningful for organizations and employers, right? They want to make the most. I have all sorts of analogies. I'm sure we'll get to all of them. But um, assessment today, assessment is largely assumption, right? If you pass enough multiple choice exams, we assume you've got some knowledge. And if you if watch really, enough stuff. Yeah. Yeah. If you're really good at interviews, we assume you're good at a job. 
I mean, I always sort of jokingly say I can interview the pants off of anybody, right? But that does not mean I know anything. Like that doesn't mean I'm good at my job. It just means I'm a really good interviewer. And Which I is suspect- interesting you bring that up because when you think about this, even the things we coach and development people on for interviewing and nailing the job have nothing to do with the job itself a lot of That's times. Right. We coach people on how to do this. So to your point, it's like you can be a fantastic interviewer and be completely incompetent in the job you're hired into. There's a lot of risk laden in all of that, right? Because when you start bringing assumption into what, you know, most organizations will say stuff like people are our greatest asset. Well, if your greatest asset has been measured using a whole ton of assumption, I mean, look, I studied finance so I can understand compound risk. That's compound risk. Every single person. Right? You mean it's that's not how companies do corporate finance? Just on gut feel and assumptions? <laughs> well, should, I guess it's a whole debate of should versus, you know, is. Um, <laughs> But there are better ways. Yeah. And I think that's what we get really excited about, right? Is that there are better yeah. ways to, to, to manage that great look. I, quick analogy, right? For most of us, our home is our greatest asset, right? So I know exactly yeah. where all the like, I know how to jiggle the sink faucet to get hot water to come out. I know how to like shake the string on my blinds to make sure it closes, right? Um, <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think organizations, corporations, employers, I don't think they know where their creaky floors are in their greatest asset. I don't think mm-hmm. they understand what the values and opportunities and weaknesses of their people force is because they've never been given a real true mechanism to do that. And then we do that, right? And that's where, again, I get super excited about not just the individual, which is super meaningful, the individual opportunities for people, the systemic opportunity for change at large scale. Yeah, um, I'm an impact guy. I just feel so much impact in the work that we do. Well, and what's interesting about the analogy you brought up is that there's two lenses that you could look at it through, but I think the one you (laughs) highlighted is the right one because you could look at it as, well, we have squeaky floors, we have the broken blinds, we have the toilet that we need to jiggle. And we could say, well, we just should replace that. But the reality is in organizations, that's just the reality. It's just like your house. It's impossible for your house to ever not have some of this stuff. It's more yeah. about knowing where those things are. That's and how do you work with it? Because you don't pursuing it going, well, how do we just eliminate all of those issues? You don't. I don't remember if it's a Drucker framework or whatever, but it's the four quadrants, right? Of like the, I know what I know. I know what I don't know. I don't know what I know. I don't know what I don't know. All I'm saying is, again, like this idea, we need to start moving from the I don't know what I don't know to the I know what I don't know quadrant. As soon as you do that, that's actionable, right? Like that's that becomes something. Yeah, you can do something with that. Yeah, That's just it. And I think even using that analogy, like that's a really important thing in that it's not about ignoring it or finding it so that you can make a massive change because the reality is it's giving you the knowledge and the information to be able to make wise decisions. Like I just think about some of the things in our house that we let go because we've intentionally made the decision to say the effort to change, there's better ways we can solve it versus tearing Mm -hmm. down the house and rebuilding a new one. Chris, you've spent a bunch of time on in executive tables and different companies and things like that. You've all, you've, I presume have had to manage up, right? In the past. Never. (laughs) (laughs) But what is the thing that you manage up for, right? Like, what is the thing you're really trying to keep in mind when you develop something for a boss, leader, superior, right? You're you're trying to address the things that, generally speaking, you know, keeps them up at night. And a lot of the effectively, you're, 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 you know, especially as you go higher and higher and higher up the organization, the primary role of an executive table is actually risk management, right? It's not, yes. un, you know, it's not catastrophic or not catastrophic, but um, uh, astronomic growth. It's astronomic growth in the confines of risk management. Risk, right? right. And so when you said ignore, right? Like, again, like this is, you know, my finance suite coming up, but there are some principles on risk management, right? You can't ignore, as you said, you, I love the word you chose. It's what gave me, got me on this tangent. You can't just ignore risk. You have no. to accept it or mitigate it, right? You can't just ignore it. You can't just cover yourself with blankets and pretend it's not there. And unfortunately, (laughs) I think that's what we've done with people for a really long time. I, this was a little bit of an unexpected hole we went down, but I'm actually really glad we did. And I love, this is why I love talking to folks with lots of different backgrounds because we bring different lenses to it. And that point you brought up about the risk piece is so important in this conversation because to your point, I think this is 
what organizations have often done. It either feels too overwhelming. It feels too confusing. It feels too like, I don't know what to do with it. So it's like, let's just, let's just ignore it and hope it goes away. And that is one of the worst things you can do for risk period, not just in an organization, but that's the worst thing you can do in, in life because you have to accept there's risks associated with everything. It's a matter of being informed and doing something with it. Yeah. And like measuring the risk, you know, because here's where I'll give some credit to folks who are doing, I mean, look, we're listening, we're talking to a whole bunch of people today and then we'll hopefully have a whole bunch of listeners listening who are in this world day in and day out. But I don't, what I don't think people are intentionally, I don't think people are intentionally waking up every day just being like, ah, not a, that's not a big deal. I think, right. I think we sort of just either, I'll, I'll share two possibilities, probably more than two. Either we don't know how to measure it or we just don't understand how big of a risk it is, right? So we sort of business value it away. We sort of say, well, yes. you know, we can't invest in that this quarter because shareholders or because funders or because whatever. Yes. Without necessarily being able to, you know, we have all sorts of little stats, right? Well, how much does it cost to recruit a new employee, Chris? Some stats say up to 40% of the existing person's salary, right? Um, how many months does it take for somebody to truly be onboarded? Well, some stats say it's for every $10,000 of salary, you can expect up to six weeks of onboarding time. Like there are there are some of these facts and figures, but but again, I don't think anybody wakes up every morning intentionally ignoring no. those facts and figures, right? And, not- I th- and I appreciate you making that clarification because I think sometimes, right, I, I tend to do in hyperbole. Um, but I think this is, it's not this intentional thing. And to be fair, and this is why I'm so excited about this conversation and where the skills conversation is going, <coughs> it has historically been very, very difficult. It's been time consuming. It's been resource intensive. And so it has been one of these things that has been extremely challenging, I think, for a lot of organizations to figure out what to do with it. And so when yeah. you can't quantify it, and you aren't even really sure what to do with it. As a result, sometimes then that just naturally goes to, well, I'm going to solve the fire that I can quantify and I can assess versus the one that, boy, I don't just don't even have a category for it. Yeah, bang on. And I, I think um, I think people are doing their best. And this actually goes, sort of goes back to the first part where, where um, as, because you're right, the problem has existed for a while I think it's okay to call out that the pandemic ex- ex- sort of expedited so many of these Certainly challenges, did. right? We we now have things like the great resignation, right? We have a term for people saying, "I don't feel valued enough. I don't like the. I don't think the work that I'm doing is fulfilling enough. Um, I wasn't used the correct way. You know, I wasn't utilized the correct way. People didn't. You know, especially coming out of you know the, the George Floyd murder and um, up here in Canada, we had you know. Um, thousands, thousands, Chris, of unmarked graves of children found in uh, what we used to call Indian residential schools, which was, you know, there's a lot of social things happening alongside everything we were dealing with in the workplace. And people sort of just sort of reflecting and saying, hey, um, I spend 10 hours a day with my laptop or my workers, my work colleagues or whatever, and that needs to matter. And I think every organization has the potential to be purposeful, meaningful, and like places where people want to, you know, work. And I think it really comes down to the micro, you know, that whole, that old saying, right? People don't quit jobs so much as they quit leaders, right? You know, 80% of people are really quitting their leader. They're not quitting their jobs. There's a lot of potential to just make people feel more seen and included in all those soft words. But again, like when we come back to this conversation, it's like, we know we help do that through this modicum of uh, skills assessment. It sounds kind of silly to make such a big leap, right? To say, look, we help people no. feel more fulfilled at work. But, you know, I'll just share a stat that I, I learned recently. One of my favorite HR consultancies, sorry, Chris, you know, competing with your competition, perhaps. <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> there is plenty and- of water in the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> McLean and co is this like, they did like 50,000, um, exit interviews, something like 50,000 exit interviews last year. And, uh, fast, fascinating research amongst the things they talk about is the top five reasons people leave organizations. Compensation was number four of the top five, not number one, right? It wasn't just throw more money at the problem. It was number four. The other four reasons had everything to do with, 
I wasn't recognized for the skills that I had. I wasn't utilized to the best of my abilities. I didn't have enough opportunity to grow in my in my role in my career, um, and I didn't feel like the workplace valued me as an individual. These are all yeah. these are all people skills competencies. You know, sort of some DE and I. These are all those things, right? And yeah. and we know that recruitment is if not the most one of the most expensive functions of the hr of the you know hr function um, functions of a function um and so we can get ahead of that right we can get ahead of that by just you know being better at assessing people's skills utilizing them and growing them effectively and and honestly it's not just a, and and this is where i sort of wonder how much of learning and development i'd love to hear if the if folks are watching and want to sort of share experiences in the comments Right. How much do they feel that oftentimes organizations use learning and development as a defensive strategy as opposed to a truly deeply strategic one? Right. Yeah. Well, and what's interesting, because I was going to go to defensible learning mm. next, but I actually want to start. I actually want to start with this piece for skills like around belonging and strategy first, because I think the defensible piece is important. I don't want to downplay it because it is an important piece. But I think sometimes that can be initially where we go to instead of going, there's something bigger to it. And you hit on it before around this point that solving this skill piece and being able to help people. And I think sometimes we focus just on the organizational side, but even for individuals as an individual to know what are your skills and capabilities, it's a, it's a win-win in terms yeah. of creating some of these opportunities to improve career development to improve a sense of belonging because you know who you are and what you bring to the table. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and again, like it's, it's an everybody wins proposition, right? Because when, when, the, when people, you know, what we often tell our customers, right. Is you almost, in, you inherit this skills matrix on steroids. Right. And so, yeah. you know, I, I'll typically use silly examples. I don't have my, my cell phone with me, but you know, typically I'll toss a cell phone back and forth. And, and I'll sort of say, look, if you're hiring a cell phone tosser, right, you know, every job has a series of criteria, right? And so sure. those criteria can be, maybe it's eye contact with the customer, you know, while cell phone tossing, right? Maybe it's, you know, having your elbow at a certain angle for health and safety prevention, injury prevention in the workplace or whatever, okay. right? There's criteria to jobs. I mean, imagine as an organization, if you could understand all of the capabilities and levels of abilities of, you know, elbow angles and cell phone tossing so that when your business moves into the market of, you know, um, coffee mug tossing, right. You actually <laughs> really understand who might be the right people to, and, and maybe who's a little bit underutilized right now, or like who should we put on? Cause typically what I've seen in, in corporations, both the ones I've been in and clients, right. It's, it's it's uh, often the same people who get asked over and over again, right? It's often, it often right, and that's a whole bunch of untapped potential. Then, right? Then we get to that people piece, which is the individuals then have this opportunity to you know advocate for their own skills and also you know feel that utilization, feel that respect, feel that inclusion, right? It's it's a big deal. A well, and I think, and I want to unpack this a bit because mm -hmm. this is the part that um, I see. I actually see learning and development as having a really unique opportunity right now to in many ways lead some of this because I was on a panel recently talking about this. And one of the gaps that a lot of organizations have right now is that they aren't really sure. I just see a lot of organizations that going back to this, people aren't intentionally yeah. ignoring risk, just like they're not ignoring potential. It's that there's a lack of understanding of what the real potential of some of this stuff is. And I think what you just described right there are some of the problems that are happening in the executive chairs where they're going, man, we have a lack of skills in this part of it, the organization. How do we fill, how do we fill these roles with people? And they're pushing their talent acquisition teams right. to say, go find more of X person right. yeah. because they don't really know what else to fill it with. And so as a result, they're like, find more of, you know, Jupman because he, he seems to be a good performer. So can you find more of that? Yeah. It's like, right. But what makes Jupman good? And you may actually have that in your organization 
if you started having visibility into this. So instead of trying to scour the marketplace, I saw a funnel today from recruiting where it's like 400,000 leads <laughs> convert to a few thousand hires. Mm-hmm. That is a ridiculous funnel. And think about the value to an organization. If you could start to say, well, what if instead of taking those 400,000 and converting them to a few thousand hires, what if we just repurposed some of the folks in the organization that aren't the ones that are always getting tapped, not because they don't have the skills, but fundamentally, we just don't even know either that they exist or what they actually bring to the table. Yeah, I, I have to call out my former employer on this one, right? Longview Systems does an amazing job of this. And it's not to say that they never have had to let people go or lay off people, but they have a very principled intention to sort of say, if we do have to lay people off because maybe a client has left or maybe the division isn't you know as successful as it once was, it's more traditional uh, IT, um, we're going to retrain as many of those people for those next jobs inside the company um, so that we don't throw them into, you know, spiral them into that uncertainty of being unemployed, having to navigate, you know, X, Y, or Z, you know, whether it's family and health plans and all these types of things, we're going to redeploy. And also the organization wins, right? Because they're already culture fits. They've already been there. They know yeah. the politics and the organization. And so again, everybody wins, right? Like there's so much, it's hard to business value this stuff, but we have to, right? Because at the end of the day, we have to, we have to employers and businesses in particular. Are, are and going back to what we said earlier on executives job is to assess risk and make decisions based on risk. So there has to be mm -hmm. a value equation of, so how do we assess this risk to the organization? How do we assess the risk yeah. of laying off, which right now is happening everywhere? Yep. How do we assess the risk <laughs> of what is the impact of laying all these people off versus reassessing their skills and finding out, is there actually opportunity? Because I don't know about you, but I've been in plenty of organizations where they go through these massive rifts and then about 90 days later or less, they're scrambling to hire because they realize yeah. we have now huge holes in the organization. I mean, these things are cyclical. I, I and I, my heart goes out to everybody who is currently under undergoing. I agree. It. Like, right. Like, I mean, I don't want to diminish how, how, um, maybe tragic is too strong of a word, but how impactful that is. Right. So, but it is also worth knowing and remembering that, that these things are in fact cyclical and at a macro level, those jobs will come back and they might come back in slightly different places and there will be required requirements for some upskilling and training and all these things. Um, and so we will, you know, and, un, and so we will yet again, come back to a place where we will be, you know, two and a half million jobs or what was it? December, 2021, there was 11 million job openings in the United States, right? December 31st. Some ridiculous number. Yeah. 11 million. We have a short, we have an anticipated shortage of what, two and a half million data science, data analysts, data uh, visualization people by the, what, 2035 or something crazy, crazy numbers. Uh, I think I was reading a headline. It's the skills gap is an $85 trillion problem. <laughs> 85 trillion dollars. I will take 1% of it. No, um, you know, it, <laughs> I, <laughs> I'll even be happy with 0.1 actually, as I do the math. Um, yeah, I was going to say 1%. You didn't even need 1% and you could retire back in Canada. There you go. It's, it's a massive, massive business problem. That, that $85 trillion is, these are the amount of revenues that are going to be foregone if we don't solve the skills problem. It's a big yeah. Well, and, and what you said there, you know, when you were talking about the cyclical nature of this is, and I think this goes back to this, and this is my math teacher days coming back out, where a lot of times we're doing the math without seeing the full equation. And so these risks are being assessed without actually understanding all the variables in the equation. So thinking about this cycle organizations a lot because because i've been through them many times where like you said it's it is tragic when organizations just riff out these things and the impact it has on the overall performance of the rest of the organization because when you start doing this the rest of the company basically goes am i next yeah is this how long does this last the people who get ripped out of the organization regardless of how diplomatically you handle it yeah it's it's tragic it and it crushes it them and yeah. it changes your company brand. I mean, it has a massive impact on some of these things. And so when we, then when you just go back to saying, well, and now we just need to go back 
to this. This is an opportunity not to just magically fix this cycle, but to say there is opportunity to significantly mitigate this yeah. cycle that we have right now through and, doing this. And that's some of the exciting work that we, you know, you know, ideally it happens in the organization so they can avoid doing the layoffs. The other piece of that is, and again, work that we 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 do in North America and Europe is around helping people walk away from that last job. And maybe this is the segue, Chris, is with some legally, the idea of legally defensible skills from their last job. You know, I, I like to call it the personalized highlight reel video, right? Where people can take this like sort of portfolio, which by the way, Vometric is the inventor of the e-portfolio, right? Robert Smart, my business partner and founder of Vometric. Yeah. He literally invented this e-portfolio concept back in 1994, like VHS era, right? <laughs> like there's some pre really laser fun... disc. Yeah, yeah. Pre, pre, <laughs> forget Blu-ray. Like this, we're we're talking VHS. Like it might as well have been beta, right? So, um, <laughs> I like to. I, poor guy. I watch too much reg. I watch too much regular show. So like all of this is just. All coming back to me. <laughs> Poor guy's not here to defend himself, but I always like to remind him that he invented the e-portfolio when I was eight years old. Um, so it was a long time ago. It was, it was literally Windows 3.1, right? Like this is what we're talking about. So in any event, right, to be able to to be able to walk back into the workforce with this, you know, we really believe in this term, but it's a term that I can tell you stories about and tell the tell the listener story about stories about, which is this idea of legally defensible skills, right? To a standard to an industry recognized standard. It doesn't necessarily, you know, I have a bunch of industry credentials. I won't knock them fully, but I think the idea is that I can pass an industry credential exam with a 71% and earn 100% of the credential. It kind of goes back to the risk thing again, which is yeah. like, I get 100% of the credential for failing 29% of the exam. And <laughs> I don't know which ones I guessed and got right. So maybe it's even less than 71%. Yeah. And, What's an employer to do in that situation? Look, he's got the PMP or he's got the Microsoft Azure this or the GCP, you know, whatever that or whatever, you know, CompTIA, or what, any any industry yeah, service. PhD. Really. I mean, whatever Even it is, PhD, literally. Bang on. Something like that. But how do you turn that into information that's actionable by employers, both current, past and future? And this is where that piece comes back to like, you know, working with like the staffing types of agencies and working with the severance providers to sort of like help people mobilize their next job by creating these validated skills that they can advocate for themselves based on, you know, opportunities in the market. Go ahead. What, well, no, what I, what I like about where we're going with this, cause I want to keep unpacking this whole defensible, I'm going to call it legally defensible skills yeah. piece is, you know, a lot of times it's easy to look at this through the lens of the employer and what the employee, the benefit to the employer on this one, you know, yeah. here's the, here's the benefit to us in terms of what we can do with all of this, but what you just described in terms of now, now I'm just going to have my, my VHS skill portfolio, <laughs> right. That I can pull off the shelf and, and put in my VCR and play for folks. But it really truly is because the reality is going back to the mobility piece. There are times when organizations have no choice. It, it would be Again, assessing risk, they have no choice but to reduce their workforce. It's some, it's a yeah. decision that has to be made. It's the nature of business. Mm -hmm. However, what we're talking about here is by actually verifying and validating legally defensible skills, we're actually gifting our workforce something to set them up for greater success in what that next thing is which not only is great for the employee, but it's also great for the employer because it is a way of saying, no, we actually truly are committed and invested in you. And we want your success in what's next. We wish it yeah. could be here, but it can't. <clears throat> However, we want to provide you with this so that instead of getting really good at interviewing skills and whiz banging people to believe you're great at stuff, you can actually go and say, here is what I am qualified, capable, and extremely talented at doing so that they can go perfect. So that even if you bomb the interview, who cares? Because we go, we actually don't care as much about that because we know you can actually do the thing we need you to do. Well, and, and you know, I'll bring this sort of piece up again, right? You know, growing up shockingly with my parents, um, what if your English is a second language and you're just not great at the interview, but when you produce that portfolio, you're the world's best cell phone tosser, right? Um, 
what if that's the situation? What if you have like high anxiety, right? Um, yeah. What if, what if I you mean, have, all the neurodiversity stuff coming out, there's yeah, a lot. Ab absolutely. Why, why can't we, I grew up watching up to your TSN, your ESPN equivalent and watching sports center every morning. And I love the highlights. Why can't we all have highlights? Like, why can't we all do that? Right. Why can't we all be able to put ours? And, and well, uh, that's the question we're answering, right? Like that we can. <laughs> we can. That's the we thing. Can. It's not a like pithy. What if? Imagine a world where right. this is possible. It's it's it's. And you're right. Like there's a element of a, or a level of compassion that you know organizations could. And again, it's the everybody wins piece, right? There's a level of compassion that organizations can exercise by doing something like this, like you said, right? By, by enabling people who are leaving an organization to be equipped with something like this. On the flip side, if they decide to train and upskill, like imagine for the LND leaders in, in the call, right? Like imagine being able to, to talk to your training provider and say, listen, great, you know, you, you know, you're gonna send 50 or 10 or 20 or 100 of your employees to some training provider, insert you know, training provider here to do all of your corporate training for the year. Well, imagine if you also told, told them, hey, <laughs> in order to be our training provider, you actually need to provide some validated assessments through Validate, ideally, um, to <laughs> <laughs> wink, wink, nudge, nudge, check out the link. Um, <laughs> you know, idea. What if, what if you could actually sort of work with your training provider and say, look, if you can do this, right, if you can do like, like validated assessments, I would be your customer for life. Like if yeah. you could prove to me that the four days that I sent Chris or Jutman away for some random training, that they're going to come back with skills we actually need in this organization. I mean, that's, that's easy money, right? That's easy money to, and it's, it's a, it's, it puts power back in the hands of the learning and development team. Right. And it, it becomes it deeply strategic, right? It's, uh, it becomes extremely strategic. And I think this is one of the things where for L and D leaders, this is where, our appetite for driving this conversation, not only because, as you mentioned, and I think this is one of the things, sometimes I'll be in conversations and people go, well, sometimes we just have to make choices between you know, the business and the employee. And it's like, <laughs> actually, less than you think, right. less than you think. There are opportunities where you can go, no, actually, like what we're talking about, the choice done right is actually in the best interest of both parties. Right. It's a win-win for everybody. There's not a, well, this person has to lose so this person can win in order to be able to do this. And this is what, I, these are the problems I love to sort of really dig into, right? Because I think, I don't think every organization does this by any means, but I, I feel as though oftentimes the great folks working in HR and HR adjacent functions their hearts are in the right place and they want to do right yeah. by people. Like the hearts are so full, right? These are such good human beings who want to do such good things. And I sometimes think that perhaps the organization, right, the business, which for some reason we don't include HR in, but the business, <laughs> <laughs> the business is like, okay, well, that's just that like soft HR stuff. So we'll yeah. do as much as we have to. And it's a blanket statement, huge generalization. But I guess what I'm saying is this is why I love digging into these problems because, you know, we can, <laughs> excuse me, we can equate the best possible ways to, you know, take care of people with business value. We can do that. And, and again, I just sort of go back to like, this is why I get super jazzed up every morning because like, yeah. I know that the opportunities to, to, to redefine how people are used and utilized for profit, right? Or if you're a for-profit, right? Like for the purposes of businesses to do better, grow more, or for the purposes of nonprofits to, you know, generate additional impact or better funding, like we, we can do that. Like we can do that. We can do that together. We can. Well, and what you hit on there that I actually think is a distinction and almost a step we need to take to step into this is <laughs> you, you, you mentioned it, that a lot of times we talk about the business as separate, right? There's mm -hmm. the business and then there's us doing this other stuff over here type of a thing. When in fact, getting into this space, actually you become one of the business stakeholders in many regards. And I think this is one of the, no, now we're not having a conversation of squishy, nice to have stuff. Now we're actually having a strategic business conversation and we're coming to the table, not saying, 
you know, let's say we're dealing with an ops leader, not saying I understand how to run your operations better than you do, but I do understand what to do with your people better than you do. And instead of competing and fighting with each other going, no, we're both set out for the same thing. There's a skill and expertise and a business capability that I have to help you drive that forward so that you can focus on this. And I think yeah. to your point, people have the best intentions of some they of this, really but sometimes what happens is it runs astray because we aren't coming to the table with this business operator hat in mind and thinking about the work we do in terms of tangible business stuff. I don't have stuff, a good word yeah. for it. Stuff. And it's tough, right? Like I know my peers oftentimes will sort of, you know, other, other, other companies that are sort of navigating these types of spaces <laughs> will try to ignore talking to HR at all. And, and that's too bad, right? Because like, yeah, that's too bad because again, these are some of the best people I've ever met at the end of the day, right? Like the people who are really like, they're just, and that's, I think what one of the things I love about the space as well is like, I would have dinner with pretty much all of my clients, right? Like not, and not for business <laughs> development purposes. Like I would play board games. <laughs> no, like legit, games. like come over and we'll yeah. have a barbecue type thing. Yeah. Like there's such good people trying to do such good things. And I get it. Like, there's a there's a tendency to sort of go to like the CFO's office or the COO's office, or the ops guys or the, you know, whatever. Um, and we do that too on occasion. But I guess all I'm saying is that like the people who are really running people organizations, I think, as you said, have the best intentions because, look, they want to remain employed, too. <laughs> there are still people that are yeah. trying to pay their bills and feed their kids. Right. Like, you know, everybody's trying to do right. by the, Again, I don't think anybody wakes up with this active intention no. to be like, I'm going to screw over my employer or anything, right? So I think like, <laughs> I hope not. But, you know, I, um, anyways, it's a bit of a tangent and a ramble. I think, I just think that, you know, there are ways to bridge this gap of, you know, people versus business. And, and those are the conversations. I well, and I think that's, what's exciting about where this space is going is that it does give us a distinct attribute in the conversation um because and i think to your point i think sometimes when we try and leave we <laughs> i just see businesses like you said do this where they do either try and go directly through hr or learning or they go well they just aren't getting it done so we're going to go directly to the business leader instead and there's risks going both ways you know, if you go one route, you may miss some of that business acumen side of, well, what, how's it actually working? Or what are some of the strategic business priorities? You go the other way and you run the risk of business leaders don't always have that human centered component. And that's not a squishy thing. So I think it is an opportunity. And that's where I push people in our field to say, this is actually, we keep saying we want a seat at the table. <laughs> There has never been a better opportunity to have a seat at the table with something of significant, meaningful value to drive corporate strategy and have a set, have a sense of belonging at the table versus just being the token, you know, people person at the table to go, no, I'm actually contributing to this in a really meaningful strategic way. I'm just going to cut that like last 15 seconds out and just use it as our marketing <laughs> material. <laughs> um. Because you're right. Look, you're right, right? Like to be able to drive value, um, again, for people, for organizations and to do it in a way that's inclusive and to do it in a way that meets the current and future labor needs and demands. And, you know, that's and again, this is just the organization side. Like, but absolutely, there's a huge opportunity to do that. Good work. Like you said earlier, ocean's big enough for lots of people, right? Like, you know, again, I just need 1% of that 85 trillion. So. <laughs> So I do want to transition to this because I'm really curious on this because this is where I see things. We talked about it a little in the beginning where a lot of times where we've gone with the validation of skills is it's, it really is based on honestly, poor, poor metrics. You know, like mm -hmm. we said, well, you passed a test, you know, you got 70%. So you got the full degree and we're going to assume that that means that everything in all the classes that you took and every actually carried through and you know how to do it or you have a certification so you actually end up doing that i'm curious how are you approaching the validation of skills because to me this has been one of the biggest black boxes for a lot of things over the years where i've seen people really try and crack this and they've struggled with it so what does that look like for you 
but also speaking more broadly, like how do we move beyond, <laughs> hey, you passed a test or yeah. you passed an oral exam or you did this one thing really nice. And so I'm going to assume the rest. Yeah. So it goes back to that sort of cell phone toss example. We can do this with technical skills, with soft skills, with sort of in different, depending on your, your region, they might be called key skills or essential skills or power skills or whatnot. Um, but basically our, our principle basically is that people are three dimensional. Their assessments are often one dimensional. Okay. How do we, how do we bring three dimensional assessment to the table? But, you know, cause you know, let's, let's go back to our university days for a sec, right? There is actually zero science anywhere that suggests that putting <laughs> 1,500 students in a gymnasium in the middle of December is the right way to assess their knowledge and competence. And yet yeah. December after December, universities around this country and yours and mine both and around the world will do that. Final exams, three hours, high stakes exams, time boxed. You know, if you talk to anybody, if you collaborate with anybody, we call that cheating, you get kicked out of the exam room. <laughs> right and the very thing we're trying to build skills in companies which is how do you work together with people and collaborate we're like no but if you do that we we're that gonna cheating. fail you that's right we call that cheating <laughs> and it's 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 laughable look it is laughable man like it's and it's you know universities colleges lots of really cool things going on that are trying to reform the way we do assessment because assessment then becomes a gatekeeper to whether or not okay a student can become a productive worker. If you don't get enough of those multiple choice tests right, you don't get the degree. Now, we're seeing a lot of things around skills-based organizations, skills-based hiring. I always ask the question quietly in my head, well, how? Like, yeah. <clears throat> how are people actually doing skills-based hiring? Like, again, this is not just meant to be a nonstop marketing pitch, but it's like, I know we help that conversation. How are others doing it? Because yeah. how do you give people credit for their server skills in a restaurant to then do customer support in IT? There's a lot of overlapping skills. I agree. There so are. we should do skills-based hiring. But how are people actually doing it? This is what I'm really interested in finding out more and more about. Um, because I, we know that the world is moving to the skills-based sort of the skills-based way. So how do we do it? We take three-dimensional multimedia assessments. Again, not a brand new idea. We you know through the idea of VHS tapes around, right? There, this <laughs> idea of three-dimensional um, assessments then needs to be met with another critical component, which is they need to be auditable. Okay. They, need to, they need to stand up um, under scrutiny. And so you take, you know, vocationally competent people, right? And they're assessing through validate these three-dimensional pieces of evidence. But even that, right? Like, you know, one of the big pluses to that whole multiple choice exam in the, in the, in the gymnasium thing is at the end of that exam, you just filter in the Scantron through the machine and it just reads everything. And look, your assessment is done. Wash your hands of that, take the mark and off you go. And that next, next term starts and just do it again with the next 1500 students. So then our question became, how do we do this just as quickly? Because overarchingly, most of our market is 16 years and up, right? So predominantly adult learners, a little bit of sort of pre-apprentice workforce development type of stuff around youth engagement, CTE. Um, and then adult learners going into corporate and, and, and sort of employers. The question is, you know, how do you um, create these multimedia assessments that that are super valuable for all of these stakeholders? And how do you do it in a way that that you can grow and create career pathways and you can grow and create these personalized highlight reels? And you can there's a million different credentialing possibilities in the United States right now. A million. If you're an 18 year old, and I realize this is not necessarily the university podcast, but there's a million different credentialing pathways right now. It's a big, it's a, as it is, it is we're it's honestly overwhelming. Right? I know a lot of people who are kind of the Gen Z <laughs> group coming up in this, trying to figure out how do I actually navigate this because there yeah, are so many and, pathways. And, and also, you know, you're an executive or have been an executive at a healthcare organization, right, Chris? The yep. question to me, the question is, does that mean you could not be an executive at a fintech company or a bicycle manufacturer? I would say, of course you can, right? 
And right. so finding finding this ability, going sort of circling back, and so finding this ability to understand, well, what are the skills that just make you a good executive? What are the skills that make you good at customer service? So you can go from that restaurant yeah. job to that customer IT job. And how do we do that as quickly as possible? How do we almost, how, how close can we come to matching the efficiency of throwing a Scantron into a machine and just reading it out? How close right. can we get to that level of efficiency? That's what Validate uh, ultimately does. We So you take all those pieces, right? Quick, efficient, quick and efficient, fine. Auditable, super important. Multimedia assessments <clears throat> that are deemed to be vocationally competent by, again, assessors who are vocationally competent. And that sort of mix gives us, um, gives us what Validate does at the end of the day is this idea okay. that, you know, this stands up under scrutiny. And now as an employer, you've effectively de-risked your entire recruitment or skills development process. You've brought it down next to zero. Right? Well, and you know, one of the things you just brought up is you highlighted some of the ways that you approach this. Cause I've, I've heard, it's very similar to some of the things that I've seen work really well in organizations before. Um, and one of the challenges that I think is interesting that I see in organizations, and I think this sometimes comes up, is people always ask, well, can't we just do that internally? <laughs> can't we just do that internally? And I actually don't think you can, to be completely honest, because the things you described, and this is where, and this isn't necessarily just saying, so go, you know, go sign up, although I'm sure you would you'd love me to say that. <laughs> but I think there is That's this another point of, half a second split that I'll just yeah, there so you go, go sign up. <laughs> Sorry, keep going. <laughs> Take little snippets of this video and <laughs> out of context. In, in reality, I have seen people try and build some of this out internally. And I've actually been an advocate saying, this is not something you want to try and do internally for so many of the reasons that you described in that the level of consistency that you need, um, you know, the ability to be consistent with how you're assessing how do we make decisions on what these things are so that to your point of making them defensible? Well, it's not different if this person does it and it's different over here. And then, then basically it's so inconsistently you're back to, well, actually there's zero actual validation behind anything that we're doing, but that kind of stuff doesn't scale in a company. Most companies just are not, you can't scale that. And I think that is one of those things where, I'm always advocating for you actually need a strategic partner who's doing a good job at this yeah. because they have the benefit of being able to really focus and do this really well versus kind of duct tape and paper clipping something together. Cause it's like, well, that's all we really have time for. And so we're, we're asking managers to assess their talent all individually and we sent them a job aid. So hopefully that it just does not scale. Sure. It does not scale within an organization. It, it, at the very least, it's deeply hard work, right? If you don't have par, you know, parameters, right? It's parameters in place to help you do the work. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. I just feel like the amount of complexity, even just knowing what you do and knowing what <clears throat> the players in your space do, yeah, the amount of complexity and specialization that goes into it, I just... There are very few things that I would go, no, you actually need a partner for this. Yeah. And to me, this is one of those. It's like when people come and talk to me and they're like, well, what if we could get IT resources to rebuild some of these systems that are in the market instead of having to buy? And I go, yeah. why would you do Why yeah. would you do that? The amount of specialty and specialization <clears throat> that you would need to do it really well, you cannot scale. And the effort you're going to put into it, going back to assessing risk and assessing value it's not there yeah a, that's a whole whole big bucket of worms too right like coming from an it background a little bit for a couple of years right it's like the build versus buy conundrum there's always you know there are definitely occasions where build makes more sense than buy. there are occasions i won't <clears throat> say there aren't they are rare right like if your core job is cell phone tossing, why are you also now bolting on software development to your cell phone tossing job or to your cell phone yes. tossing core, core, core go to market thing. Um, and, you know, to, to work with partners, again, easy, easy to get all sales pitchy here, but I think at the end of the day, you won't, you, you need to work with partners that, that want to get to know your business. And, and that's again, like every who, what sales guy does, doesn't, doesn't say that. But I think 
there is a point where, I, look, I fundamentally agree with you. Assessment is is hard work, and you need this. You need hard. help. It needs to, and be it's done. deep skill. <laughs> it's deep skill. I mean, we're talking about skills, <clears throat> but the skill in assessment and validation—that's a deep skill. You know, in that's Europe, not something that you're a, like, well, you know, I've done some stuff, so I can probably figure that out. There's a credential for assessing in the in Europe. <laughs> that's what um, I'm saying. Not in North America. Now, luckily, we were born and raised in Europe. We got, you know. We're gonna hit. We're gonna hit 15 million users by the end of. We're gonna hit at least 15 million users by the end of 2024, and okay. we were built on the back of some really interesting work that started in the UK when competency, skills, apprenticeship, the de facto way to learn. And Robert, thanks to his vision, foresight, knowledge, and and just some really really good bets, has been at the heart of that. And so. Yeah. <clears throat> We know we have an expertise to lend on this problem, which helps make it easier. I don't go as far all the time, Chris, to sort of say you need to have the assessment take place outside of the organization. The reason, I, and again, I sort of, <clears throat> you've, done, you've been doing this a lot it's longer fair. than I have, but, but I, sort of, I sort of look at, when I bring it down to the micro problems is, uh, bring it back to the house, the house analogy. Um, when you got a leaky faucet, maybe your first call isn't always to a plumber. Maybe your first Fair. task is, why don't I go look on YouTube and sort of see who's had a similar problem and see how they fixed it. <clears throat> and so that idea that you can sort of assess it yourself and go after something yourself is possible. But I agree with you fundamentally, uh, which says that alone though, like that doesn't mean you should build a thing inside of your company. You can, you can use... You can use us as an example, but yeah. you, you know, idea is you can use a partner to facilitate that function. You don't, you know, yeah. if you feel like there's a trade secret that you can't just outsource to an assessor. No. And I, okay. So I, I actually see, this is where I, I actually like the debate piece where we kind of yeah. go back and forth because it helps me clarify my point on this. And I think your example, the house example actually really beautifully illustrates this because it's not my position on this would not be there is nothing you can do. Just relegate and kind of like pass it off. <clears throat> I actually would say that's foolish because mm -hmm. you actually do need to know your organization. You need to know the challenges. You need to lean in deep. There's still right. a heavy part that you have to be involved in. Um, and can you get started? Like you said, with the faucet, if you have a leaky faucet, <laughs> the reality is I don't know an organization in the world that just has a leaky faucet. And I think Fair. that's the problem. Fair. We've got... We've got organizations where the basement is flooded and all the pipes in the house are dripping through the walls. And it's like, well, is it possible for us to YouTube this? And I go, no, like, right. no, do not try and YouTube your skill assessment validation piece because <laughs> the bottom line is there is a lot of work ahead. Now, does that mean you just like sit back and wait for the plumber to show up? <laughs> no, no. But I think that's one of those, like, we've got a, and I mean, like you said, it's a multi-trillion dollar problem. Wild. The house is flooded. Water's pouring out of everything. And that's not something you want to YouTube. Here's the empathy piece that I think I sort of have with it is, do you know who thinks it is a leaky faucet? The business, right? And yes. so the business, you know, and this is where I sort of go back to why I love talking to the L&D and the HR functions is like these folks on probably like you understand there's a lot of work to do, but that doesn't mean the appetite will be there for the no. budget approvals and things like that. And this is the journey, right? This is and this is why this problem will not go away, by the way. This is why yeah. this problem we've got 30 percent of the workforce expected to retire in the next 10 years. That's, this problem's not going away. Like we're, this problem no. is still, you know, you know, fine generated, you know, generative AI and all these things that are going to sort of hopefully reduce the need for people. Well, first off, I hate the word hopefully in that sentence, but point being is that, you know, organizations will always have a labor challenge. New types yes. of jobs will arise as a result of things like generative AI. Oh yeah. The work's never done. <clears throat> the work's never done. So this problem no. is still just beginning. So. And I think that is a great point to kind of close on is that the opportunity, like you said, I don't think everybody realizes the basement is flooding and water is pouring out of all the pipes. And I think yeah. that's the opportunity. There's a greater awareness rising 
that it is becoming this, but we've also got to take into consideration a lot of the people in those decision-making chairs are also the people that are like, yeah, but this is something that I probably won't, <laughs> yeah. right? I'm, I'm, I'm in the end of my season. It may not be something I personally, so it's not necessarily as personal as for the folks that are coming up. And I think yeah. this is where the opportunity lies to help drive this and make everyone realize just how much water's in the base. Totally agree. And certain, certainly never trying to sell against myself. I guess what I'm saying is I have a lot of empathy for the decision-making. Yes. I realize we're going to wrap up here, Chris, if you don't mind me taking 30 seconds, I just want to quickly yeah. make a quick acknowledgement here. So up here in Canada, it's, well, it's December 6th, as it is in most, most places in the world right now. Um, today is, is a pretty important day in Canadian sort of history, if you will. In 1989 on this day, uh, 15 women were shot and killed at a polytechnic, uh, sort of a community right. college in Montreal. Now, working in education, I sort of sort of say this is sort of my responsibility to sort of call some of these things out. Um, today is the National Day of Action and our National Day of Remembrance and Action on Violence Against Women. Um, there's really nothing more to other, say other than look, hug oh, yeah. your loved ones closer. Um, but we need to we continuously need to work on more equity. We need, continuously need to work on more inclusive spaces and. Um, and we're just trying to do our part in the way that we can. So, And I think this is a fantastic way to take some action to this. So hopefully everyone who listens and watches this is seeing how some of these pieces fit together because um, they are all interconnected. They aren't disparate from each That's other. That's what we so believe too, yeah. I appreciate you making the time to join and I'm so thank glad us. we were able to get this in in 2022. And uh, thank you so much for being <clears> here. <throat> Thanks for the conversation. Thanks everybody for listening. And I hope you have an absolute fantastic week. Uh, thank Jutman for joining me. Thank you for having me.